Okay, turn with me to Matthew 8, and we are going to be examining verses 23 to 27 this morning. And based on us getting started a little later, I doubt that we will complete this passage, but we will certainly do as much as we can. Uh, let's read these verses. Very familiar story to you. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, O you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. Before we dive into this passage, I want us to consider some of the background to set the context for this passage. And the background takes us all the way back to creation. When God created man, God ordained that man was to be the king of the earth. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Man was to be the monarch over all creation. But when man fell into sin, he was dethroned as the king. He lost his sovereignty. He lost his right to rule. He lost the majesty and the wonder of the glory of an innocent earth, the kingdom that God had given him. And the earth was immediately cursed by God. Uh, and as a result of that curse, the control of the earth fell into the hands of the usurper, Satan, who is called the prince of this world, the god of this age. So man lost his dominion, the earth lost its glory, and what was the result? Well, man's sin, earth's corruption, and Satan's rule have brought sickness and pain and death, hardship, sorrow, war, injustice, falsehood, famine, natural disaster, demonic activities, difficult relationships, every kind of evil you can think of that plagues the world. Those are the things that result from sin. And the earth constantly endures all these things. But the story of the Bible is that of God's great and glorious plan of redemption, in which God not only redeems man, but also redeems man's environment, the earth, reversing the curse. Now, according to God's divine plan, God would come to earth twice. The first time he would come to redeem man, and in his second coming he will redeem earth. In the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, he came in humility, went to the cross, and rose from the grave for the redemption of man. The second time he comes in blazing glory, establishes a thousand-year millennial kingdom, and then a new heaven and a new earth throughout all of eternity thus redeeming the whole of creation. And man will once again reign over the new earth. Uh, Revelation 22.5 says that on the new earth there will no longer be any night, and they will have not have need of a light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, 
because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Now that's the plan. And Christ is the one to carry out the plan. The ultimate design is an earth with no sorrow, no tears, no pain, no sicknesses, no demons, no death. There will only be holiness, righteousness, truth, peace, love, beauty, and glory forever. That's the coming kingdom of God. Its first phase is the thousand-year millennium, when the Lord reverses the curse on the earth itself. The second phase is the eternal state, when he creates a new heaven and a new earth, unlike the one we have now. Everything is going to change in the future. Everything we know of as a curse that blights man's existence, that breaks man's heart, that steals his joy, that takes away from mankind the dominion and dominance that God intended him to have, the sovereignty that God designed, will be reversed. And we will reign forever and ever with Christ on his throne. That's the redemption of the universe. But as we look at mankind and the present earth and compare it to the glorious coming kingdom of God, it becomes patently obvious that man can't affect that change. We can't change anything in our environment. Weather, droughts, famines, disease, sickness. We can try to deal with some of those problems. We can't eliminate them. We don't have the power or the ability. We can build all kinds of machines and equipment, but all we do is pollute the environment around where we're building and using those things. We can shoot off rockets into space. All we end up doing is leaving a bunch of space junk flying around, presenting a danger to other rockets and people when it falls back to Earth. Someone has said that for every problem science solves, it creates six more that must also be solved. Um, so the greater our advancement, the more severe the complications. So man cannot bring about a renewed earth. Man cannot eliminate the curse. He doesn't have the power. As powerful as our machinery, computers, and rockets are, as clever as we are in developing new energy sources, we still cannot apply those things to changing our environment, our, our, our universe. Having been born and raised here in Florida, I have periodically heard meteorologists and scientists talking about developing ways to dissipate or steer hurricanes away from land. <coughs> That's impossible. Uh, we can't change our environment. Every time I hear one of those scientific fools talking that way, I'm reminded of Genesis 8.22, when after the flood, God told Noah, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Uh, so if the earth is going to be changed and if the environment is going to be altered, and if there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, it's going to have to be done by someone far superior to any man. In fact, it's not only a power beyond man, it's a power that's inconceivable to man. We can't even imagine the kind of power it will take to reverse the curse and create a new heaven and a new earth any more than we can imagine the kind of power it takes for God to create in the beginning and to uphold creation. Psalm 62:11 says, power belongs to God. 
Job 26.14 speaks of the greatness of your power. Uh, Nahum 1.3 says the Lord is great in power. Psalm 65.6 says the Lord is one who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might. No wonder David cried out, Psalm 63, 1 and 2, O God, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Romans 1.20 tells us that since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So what kind of power is it? Well, the longer we look at the universe, the more shocking it becomes to see the power that's exhibited there. Have you seen the photos that have come from the new James Webb Space Telescope? Uh, they've got some new photos. They're stunning. It, this, this telescope's located 930,000 miles out in space, almost a million miles out. And it can see 13.6 billion light years out into space. That's 80 sextillion miles. In other words, 80 followed by 21 zeros. Okay? Uh, even then, we haven't even come close to the edge of space. And everywhere we look, we see power, movement of heavenly, bo heavenly bodies energized with incredible power. I mean, we live on a ball that's 25,000 miles in circumference, 8,000 miles in diameter, and the Earth weighs 6 septillion 500 sextillion tons, and it hangs on nothing. It hangs on nothing. You say, well, gravity holds it up. What's gravity? You know, what powers gravity that holds this thing in space? Not only that, but it makes it spin at a rate of 1,000 miles an hour. That's how fast we're going this morning, 1,000 miles an hour in a circle. And it's so accurate you can measure time to the split second. And, and we're not only going around at 1,000 miles an hour, but we're going on a 580 million mile orbit around the sun at a speed of 1,000 miles per minute. And not only that, our whole solar system's flying through endless space as part of the galaxy, Milky Way galaxy that is traveling, get this, 1.3 million miles per hour through the universe. We're going in at three different speeds right now. Where's the fuel? Where's the energy? What makes us go? Did you know that they have estimated the energy of the sun to be the equivalent of 500 million, million, billion horsepower? And there are at least 100 billion stars in our galaxy, then there are at least 200 billion galaxies many of which are much larger than the Milky Way. Where's the power? What keeps it all moving? God's also the creator of the microcosm. Do you know that in a teaspoonful of water, a teaspoonful of water, there are a million, billion, trillion atoms. And those atoms are made up still of smaller particles of energy. And the subparticles of those particles are still being discovered. And someone comes along and says, well, there's matter in the middle of each of those atoms. You know how much of an atom is actual matter? <coughs> One trillionth. 
So there are a million, billion, trillion atoms in a teaspoon of water, and one trillionth of that atom is volume, and the rest is energy and motion. Now, I've been talking about astronomy and atomic science. We haven't even addressed the biological world with all of its wonders. So what makes all of this go? When Hebrews 1.3 tells us, when it says that Jesus upholds all the world, all things, by the word of his power, it doesn't mean just mean that he holds up the matter. It means that he energizes every atom in the universe. And the universe goes so far, it's inconceivable. That's the power of God. Magnificent power. So do you think God has the power to reverse the curse and remake the earth? <laughs> I think he does. He has the power to create a new heaven and a new earth. And that's one reason why Jesus came, to show us that power. Jesus came into the world to declare once and for all that he was God and that as God the Son, he had the power to bring the creation of God to the kingdom of God to a cursed earth. To show that he was the promised king, the promised Messiah, that he could restore the earth, that he could eliminate sin. He had all the credentials. In Matthew 1, Matthew says he has the right genealogy. He was in the line of Abraham and David. In Matthew 2, he had the right birth. He was born of a virgin. In Matthew 3, he had the right baptism. He was affirmed by the Father and anointed by the Spirit. In Matthew 4, he had the right test, the temptation in which he showed his power over Satan. And then in Matthew 5 to 7, he gave the right message. He confirmed the word of God with absolute authority. And now Matthew says in chapters 8 and 9 that he has the right power as seen through his miracles that were a foretaste of the kingdom. Flip over a page or whatever you do in your tablet to chapter 9, verse 6. Jesus says this, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, power, dominion on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. You see, that's the whole reason for his miracles, that mankind would know that he has the authority, the power. The miracles were foretaste of kingdom power. When he healed the sick, he was giving a preview of a glorious kingdom where there would be no sickness. <clears throat> when he raised the dead, he was giving a preview of a glorious kingdom in which there would be no death. When he cast out demons, he was previewing a kingdom in which there would be no evil demonic activity at all. And when he spoke the truth, he was previewing a kingdom in which there would be no lies, only truth. You see, everything he did was to say, I'm the one who can reverse the curse. I'm the one who can bring back man's authority to rule in a glorified eternal kingdom. <clears throat> and that's why we see in chapter 9, verse 8, that when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. In chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. He gave them power in two areas, over demons and over disease. Those are the only two types of miracles he gave them authority to perform. The apostles were never, never given authority to perform miracles that dealt with nature. Only Jesus did those. <clears throat> to prepare his disciples 
for his transfiguration. He says in Mark 9, 1, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. What's he talking about? He's referring to his transfiguration. Verse 2, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And then it says that Elijah and Moses were there with him. He apparently brought them out of paradise to speak with him. That's power. He was transformed and revealed his glory to them. They saw the power that will be fully revealed in the kingdom. In Romans 1.4, Paul says he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And in 1 Corinthians 1.24, Paul speaks of him as Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what Matthew is showing us is that Jesus Christ has power over every facet of the curse, over disease, death, Satan, demons, natural elements, animals, pain, everything on earth. And therefore, he is qualified to be the rightful heir to the earth, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, we've already seen the first three miracles. And I told you there are nine primary miracles that Matthew tells us about in chapters 8 and 9. The first three dealt with disease. We've already seen those. The next three show his power over the natural elements, the supernatural world, and over sin. And later on, he will demonstrate his power over death. Now, let's look at the text, verses 23 to 27. I want to show you four points here. The facts, the fear, the authority, and the amazement. Let's read again verses 23 and 24. When he got into the boat, these are the facts, his disciples followed him. And behold, there was, arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. So after being surrounded by a crowd, and then confronting the three superficial followers in verses 18 to 22 about the true cost of discipleship, Jesus says it's time to leave. Now they're at Capernaum, or nearby and it's located on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee which is actually a lake it's not an exceptionally large lake it's only 13 miles long and 8 miles wide at its widest point back in verse 18 he had given orders to go to the other side Jesus is tired he's weary the Sabbath day is over it's nighttime by now, and uh, so it's probably after dark. So he says, we have to go. Now, what, did, uh, what that did was it forced the issue for those three would-be disciples that we talked about last week, who said, oh man, I'd like to come, but i got to do this thing, i got to do this other thing, and so forth. And Jesus confronts them, and so they stay behind. But some were willing to follow. Verse 23 says, when he got in the boat, his disciples followed him. Uh, The three that we looked at at the end of the last section, they didn't follow, some did. And so as the boat left the shore by Capernaum to sail perhaps four to six miles uh, to the other side, some other little boats go along. Now at that time in history, the Sea of Galilee was just covered 
on a daily basis with little fishing boats. Uh, near the city of Tiberias, uh, at the Kibbutz Ginnasar, they have what's commonly known as the Jesus boat on display there. And there's no evidence that Jesus was ever in that boat, uh, but it's a boat from the time of Christ that was recovered back in 1986 from the mud near the shore of the Sea of Galilee when they had a drought and the lake receded. Uh, what is left of it is about 27 feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and a little over four feet high. It has room for four rowers as well as a mast to sail the boat. It would probably hold eight to ten people if you weren't fishing in it, but basically it's built to normally hold a crew of five fishermen, four to row and one to steer the rudder, uh, along with their uh, nets and space for their catch of fish. Uh, and there were dozens upon dozens of these boats that took to the waters every day during Jesus' day uh, to engage in commercial fishing operations. Galilee was a farming and fishing area, as it is to this day. Uh, the lake is full of fish. There are 20 different species of fish in the lake, uh, 10 of which have commercial fishing value. Uh, the primary ones are tilapia, uh, freshwater sardines, and an edible type of carp, and mushed, or mushed, which is a fish that's uh, otherwise known as St. Peter's fish. Uh, it's a little fish that looks like a freshwater perch. It's it's called that because tradition says it's the kind of fish that Peter caught when uh, Jesus had him go catch a fish and there would be a coin in its mouth uh, and to pay taxes. Uh, they're very tasty. They're very plentiful. Uh, but fishing and agriculture were the primary industries of that area. And so there were many little boats and Jesus and the disciples used at least one to head over to the other side. Uh, Mark tells us in his account of this incident that Jesus got into the boat with his disciples and he adds that other boats were with him. Uh, so it would seem like all of the 12 who were with him were in the boat with him so that those other boats held some others who were serious about following Christ, that they were serious enough about it that they were willing to sail along with him to the other side. So the statement that his disciples followed him simply refers to disciples other than the members of the 12 who were present. There's a lot of confusion about this in the New Testament. When it says his disciples, to whom does it refer? Well, you have to look at the context. Uh, the word itself doesn't tell you anything. Uh, the word simply means pupils, learners, followers. Uh, that's all. It's a very broad word. Some people have tried to say that when you have the word disciple in the Bible, it refers to a higher level of a Christ follower, a higher level of spirituality, sort of like the top level most devoted Christians. Uh, they, in other words, they're saying that there are ordinary Christians and then there are disciples who are the top level saints. Uh, that's not the case. Uh, we cannot make that word mean that in this context. One of the reasons we can't say that these guys are legitimate disciples is, for example, is back in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, what disciples? Well, some people think it's the 12, and I'm sure they were there. 
and so if it was the 12, the Sermon on the Mount was given only to them with implications to the Pharisees that were sitting there, as we saw. And uh, But therefore, they say it can't be a message on salvation because they already believed. Uh, the problem is that it is a message of salvation. Uh, and it assumes that those listening to him may not necessarily believe. So the word disciples there simply means learners. You have the multitude that are sort of indifferent. And then you have the guys, the people who say, hey, I want to hear what this guy has to say. I'm, I'm very interested. Uh, the level of their commitment, however, is undetermined at this point. And so he speaks to them on the matter of salvation because that's a key issue. And then you come to chapter 8, verse 21, and we find in effect that one of those who is called a disciple says, I'm not going to follow you until my father dies. And Jesus says, you better leave the world to take care of your own, let the world, uh, you're better off to let the world take care of its own debt. In other words, if you're going to follow Christ, you need to count him as more important than anything, including the inheritance you'll get when your parents die. And the implication is that this guy didn't go. They just turned around and went home. And so, he, But he was called a disciple, but he didn't follow Christ. Let me put it into the context of the here and now. All of you sitting here in this class this morning are disciples of Bruce Mills. You're learners. You're pupils. Why? Because you're here. You're listening. You're sitting under my teaching. Now, some of you are enjoying it, and some of you are probably rethinking whether now's a good time to choose another Sunday school class uh, after, the, after all the new elective classes are starting in a couple of weeks uh, or next week, and uh, you haven't made your decision yet. But all of you, by exposing yourself to what I say, are disciples, learners, pupils. Now, in John 15, 6, Jesus said, If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. What does it mean to be in me there? It means to be a disciple. Uh, there were some disciples who were connected with Christ, who had no fruit, no righteousness, no holiness, nothing to show true salvation. They were cut off and burned. They were around, they were disciples, but they weren't for real. They didn't abide in him. In Matthew 13, you have this parable of the four soils. They're all the soils that are they're all the soils that are following Jesus. They represent four kinds of disciples. The seed that was shown on three types of soil died, and on one it grew. One was real, three were not. In Matthew 10:22, Jesus said it's the one who is endured to the end who will be saved. They are the true disciples. I think he had Judas in mind when he said that. Judas didn't endure to the end and showed he wasn't a true disciple. So there were learners around Jesus. But just because they're called disciples doesn't mean that they're believers. That is yet to be determined. The word in and of itself is not an indication of anything except that they were attracted to Jesus' teaching and they were listening. There are at least four categories of disciples that you find in Scripture, in the Gospels. This might be helpful for you. First, there were the curious disciples. Uh, they followed Jesus, they listened, they were fascinated, they were intrigued, they were enthralled by what he said. But what happened to them? John 6, 53, Jesus says to them one day, unless you eat the 
flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. That is, unless you take all of me, unless you're willing to identify with everything I am, unless you're willing to affirm my total lordship of your life, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot follow me. You cannot enter my kingdom. And then it says right after that, very simply in verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They were the curious, not the committed. Then verse 67, Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? And then Peter makes that great declaration in verses 68 to 69. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, we're not like those curious disciples. We believe and we're sure. The second type of disciple was the convinced First the curious, secondly the convinced. These were the guys who were intellectually convinced. Nicodemus is a classic illustration. He listened to what Jesus said, he saw what Jesus did, and he came to him by night and says, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. At that point, he was intellectually convinced, but it doesn't say that he believed in the fullest sense. In fact, Jesus pointed out to him that he needed to be born again. So as things turned out, Nicodemus did later become a true follower of Jesus and was willing to turn his back on his fellow Sanhedrin members to help bury Christ's body, thereby demonstrating his true commitment to Christ. And then third, there are the clandestine disciples, the secret disciples, uh, like Joseph of Arimathea, who kept it a secret but believed quietly. But in the end... It was him and Nicodemus, Joe and Nick, who uh, buried Jesus' body in Joseph's own tomb, thereby proclaiming his allegiance to the Savior. And finally, there are the committed disciples. They're the bold, open followers of Christ who were publicly and permanently committed to him. I've told you before, one of uh, my favorite one is the guy in John 9 who was born blind. And after being healed by Jesus, he stood up to the Sanhedrin even at the cost of being excommunicated from the temple and Jewish social society. And so you see, all of these categories are possible. So when it says disciples, you've got guys like Peter in the mix, and you've got guys like Judas in the mix. And you've got guys like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. And you've got a whole bunch of no-name disciples who bailed out the first time it got tough. So the word doesn't signify anything specific. So these are the people, in addition to the 12, who are following Jesus across the Sea of Galilee in their boats. And Jesus was about to put on a display for them that was absolutely beyond belief. So it says in verse 24, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. Now, as I said before, those are not big boats. I remember looking at the so-called Jesus boat in the museum at Guinnessar and thinking, if Jesus and all 12 disciples were in that boat, they would be stretching it to the limits of its capacity. Uh, so perhaps the boat they were in that night was a little bigger. Maybe it was a 30, 32-foot boat. Um, but they didn't have any protection from a storm. Uh, at most, they would have had a sunshade made of cloth 
for fishing during the day. They were, they were open boats with a mast and sail and, and seats for the occupants to row the boat. Uh, at the back of the boat was a rudder and a seat for the crew member who steered the boat using the rudder. And they would place a cushion on the seat which could be used as a pillow for those who were night fishing and the crew would take turns catching a nap on it while the others worked the boat, uh, worked the nets. So here comes this terrible storm. And Matthew, again, emphasizes the suddenness and unexpectedness of it with the word, behold. It, it's not something they expected uh, when they obeyed Jesus' command to row over to the other side of the sea. Now, it might seem odd that seasoned fishermen like some of the disciples in the boat, would be caught off guard by a storm like this. But let me give you a geography and meteorology lesson about the area that I think will explain how this could happen. As I said, the sea is actually a lake. Uh, the Mediterranean Sea is 31 miles away to the west. And 44 miles due north is Mount Hermon on the border with Lebanon, and it's over 9,200 feet high. So the terrain plummets both from the Mediterranean Sea and Mount Hermon down to the Sea of Galilee because the Sea of Galilee is 608 feet below sea level. So everything's going down towards the lake. And on the east side of the lake are the Golan Heights which are over 2,500 feet high. Now the Sea of Galilee is known for generally being quiet and tranquil. So it'd be easy to become complacent about expecting a storm. However, when storms do come, the sea is known for them being sudden and unexpected. There's a couple of ways that this takes place. One is that a cold front will come in from the Mediterranean, uh, slam into Mount Hermon up to the north, which serves as sort of a blockade and a guide that steers the winds down its slopes and through all the ravines and valleys and gullies, making that steep drop in elevation down to the Sea of Galilee. And when those cold winds meet the warm air that has settled down in the Galilee Basin, it, create, it creates incredible storms that can occur very rapidly. And once the winds go over the lake, they hit the cliffs of the Golan Heights on the eastern shore, and that causes the winds to swirl and twist, causing the waters of the sea, uh, of the lake, to churn very violently. And they can come without any warning at all. Another way the storms occur is that instead of a cold front, uh, a northern wind that comes from Mount Hermon, they get an eastern cool wind that comes from the Golan Heights area that blows out over the warm air that covers the sea and that cold air being heavier drops as the warm air rises and this sudden change produces very furious storms in a short period of time. In his book, The Land and the Book, by William McClure Thomas Thompson, who was a Presbyterian missionary in Syria in the late 1800s, he wrote this description of his experience of camping uh, at the Sea of Galilee. He says, quote, on the occasion referred to, we subsequently pitched our tents at the shore and remained for three days and nights exposed to this tremendous wind. We had to double pin all the tent ropes and frequently were obliged to 
to hang with our whole weight upon them to keep the quivering tabernacle from being carried up bodily into the air. The whole lake as we, as we had it was lashed with fury. The waves repeatedly rolled up our, to our tent door, tumbling over the ropes with such violence as to carry away the tent pins. And moreover, these winds were not only violent, but they came down suddenly and often when the sky was perfectly clear. I once went to swim near the hot baths, and before I was aware, a wind came rushing over the cliffs with such force that it was with great difficulty I could regain the shore." End quote. Another Bible scholar, W.M. Christie, who lived and taught in Israel for many years in the early 20th century, spent quite a bit of time in Galilee, and he says that during the storms, the wind seems to blow in all directions at the same time uh, because they rush down the narrow gorges in the hills and strike the water at an angle. And he recorded the following about one incident. He says, A company of visitors were standing on the shore of, at Tiberias and noting the glassy surface of the water and the smallness of the lake. They expressed doubts as to the possibility of such storms as those described in the Gospels. Almost immediately, the wind sprang up. In 20 minutes, the sea was white with foam-crested waves. Great billows broke over the towers at the corners of the city walls, and the visitors were compelled to seek shelter from blinding spray, though now 200 yards from the lakeside. End quote. Now, with today's meteorologists, with all their various systems for predicting the weather and everybody's phone having a weather app on it to spot the storms headed your way, uh, it's very unlikely that anyone will get caught on the Sea of Galilee in a serious storm. But they didn't have meteorologists in Jesus' day. And all they had was their own experience to count on. And in this case, being that it was dark, they couldn't even look at the evening sky and say, well, it'll be fair weather for the sky's red, as Jesus pointed out in Matthew 16 too. One of the things I did in my study was I watched a video about storms on the Sea of Galilee. And this Israeli Christian couple who made the video had filmed from back in 1992 where the waves on the Sea of Galilee were 10 feet high. Uh, it's incredible to get waves that big on a lake that size. Uh, so you can imagine what it would have been like for the disciples, all of whom are crowded into this little boat that's being tossed around in those kind of waves, especially because that many guys in one of those little boats would have definitely made been testing the weight limits of the boat. But there they are. It's nighttime, it's dark, and the text says it was a great storm. That's an interesting word. The Greek word is seismos. Seismos. Anybody know what that word would mean? Hmm? No? Quake, there you go. What's a seismograph? A seismograph measures earthquakes, doesn't it? Uh, and so the word means earthquake or a great quaking, a great shaking. Uh, we use a seismograph to measure severity of an earthquake. The term was also used of a serious storm at sea because the surface of the water was tossed around like the surface of the land during an earthquake. Both Mark and Luke use a different word uh, which means a fierce gale or storm. So this was a very severe storm, uh, unlike any that the disciples had experienced before. These, these men are fishermen. They're professional fishermen. They've seen a lot of storms, smaller. 
Uh, they'd been on that lake a lot of times when the wind blew and there were some waves to deal with, but never anything like this. There's this great seismos, this quaking, this upheaval, violent shaking as the winds and the waves hit that little boat out there on the waters. I can't imagine what it would be like. I've always said that I can get seasick on a rowboat on Lake Tarpon. Uh, but, uh, I mean, Marshall will tell you, I have to get a uh, scopolamine patch just to go on a cruise to avoid seasickness. Um, but So I can't imagine what it would, would be like in the dark, unable to see anything, no lights, with your boat being tossed around like a rubber ducky in a bathtub with a two-year-old, um, with the wind howling. And Mark's gospel tells us that the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. So the disciples are concerned about dying. I, I think I'd be hoping to die just to get out of the situation. Uh, I love the end of verse 24, though. What's it say? Jesus himself was asleep. Can you believe that? He had to really be tired. Anyone who can sleep through that has to have been completely exhausted. And that speaks of Jesus' true humanity. He was not only so tired he, that he went to sleep, he was so tired that even a severe storm couldn't wake him up. And Mark tells us that he was using the cushion at the back of the boat as a pillow. Uh, so there he was, lying on the wooden floor at the back of the boat with a cushion under his head, probably soaked by water splashing over the boat, and he's asleep. And of course, it's all part of God's sovereign plan for what's to take place. So he's sleeping. The sea is raging. The storm is howling. The wind is blowing. The little boat's being tossed around like a cork on the sea. It's filling up with water. And the creator of the world is asleep. Uh, and by the way, while he was asleep, he's upholding every atom of the universe at the same time. I also see the confidence he had in God the Father. He's so peaceful he doesn't even fear. He absolutely trusted the Father's care. He had a total absence of any fear. I wish I could live like that. Uh, we get tossed around by circumstances in our world. We begin to mistrust God and we panic. But the heart of Jesus was perfectly calm. And in his divinity, he was omniscient. Yet in his humanity, he was unconscious of his own surroundings because he was confident in God's perfect care of him. Well, as the storm increases, undoubtedly the sailor fishermen had done everything they could to deal with it. And then so that brings us to the next point, which is the fear. But we'll have to stop and wait until next week to talk about that and finish the passage. Any questions or comments or thoughts before we go? You're smiling, Norm. If we're considered saints, mm -hmm. and if we're also disciples with varying degrees of mm -hmm. how we follow, could we also be considered apostles? No. Okay. Because we're Those are set apart by God. Set apart by God, but you had to be an apostle. They had to be someone from Acts, it tells us, okay. who was a witness, an eyewitness to Jesus' okay. miracles. And ministry. Very loosely. Charismatics love it in that same way. Not when I meant apostles, not that we were elevated, but just. That we're sent. Yeah. I understand where you're coming from. But I'd be careful of that. Okay, anything else? All right. Let me uh, shut this off.